I'll start out by reading in um, John 1. 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2 says, The same was in the beginning with God. In verse 1, the, the Word is translated Logos. And Logos signifies in, in the Greek both reason and word. It's translated thought, right? Reason and and word. The translation thought is probably the best equivalent for the Greek term, since it denotes on one hand the faculty of reason, right, or the thought in inwardly in the mind, and on the other hand, it's the thought outwardly expression expressed through the vehicle of, of thought. So that's who God is. Christ is the one thought of God. And he's also the outward manifestation of God's inward thought. So that's who Christ is in John 1, 1 and 2. So let's keep that in mind um, this morning. In, in verse 14, John 1, 14 says, And the Word uh, became flesh. It wasn't made flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, the Word was never made anything. He, the Word became flesh. He was always who He was. In eternity, um, He just became man. So that's, you know, that defines that. And He was ne never made anything. He just became man. It means He took upon Him our humanity, our body, soul, and spirit. He became man, and yet He was God. And He dwelt among us, as seen in verse 14. The word dwelt, and this is the, the key word that I, I want to focus on this morning. The word dwelt in John 1.14 is not the ordinary word which means to abide, but it's a verb whose root is our word tent. And it literally uh, translates the word Christ manifested in the flesh, took up his residence in a tent among us. And it might also be translated, he tabernacled among us. I think the King James and the New King James have that. Um, so we see throughout Scripture that God's people are tent people. Our citizenship is not of this earth. Um, our citizenship is in heaven. We see um, Paul, he was a tent maker. He and every, every Jewish boy learned some manual trade along with their chosen profession. And we can see that in Acts 18.3, how Paul was a tent maker. Um, and also in the Old Testament, they, they pitched tents, and um, the tabernacle was built wherever they went, right, in the wilderness. In Revelations 21.3, it says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, that's Christ, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Matthew 5.17 says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. And Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So we clearly see that Christ is the outward manifestation of God's thought, and Christ came to fulfill the law. And he did that, right? So this was always God's thought, right? Before the foundations of the world, he knew what would take place in the Old Testament. Christ being the word then came in flesh and fulfilled everything of the old. Um, he, is to, he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So 
I want to focus this morning on um, the tabernacle and what that means and how it paints like an incredible picture for us to learn in every detail who Christ is. And there's also you know, lots of main principles that we can learn from as well. So in Exodus 25, 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a place for God to dwell with his people. And from the tabernacle, God spoke to his people and guided them um, in their wilderness journeys. Um, we can see in Exodus 25, 21 through 22, it says, And you shall put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark shall you put the testimony that I will give you, which is the Ten Commandments. And there I will meet with you. So there he's meeting with them, and I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all these things, which I have given in the commandment unto the children of Israel. So God has from the beginning visited his people, though, you know, those were just in types. Those were a, sh a shadow of, of the things to come where Christ laid or come in the flesh and fulfill everything that the tabernacle and all the facets pointed to, which it was himself. He would fulfill completely so that we too have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Be beautifully put, Christ is the living word, tabernacled, right? He tabernacled himself among men. He is the living word, and the Bible is the written word. Although the Bible is still living, right? In Hebrews 4.12, it dwells in us. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it make its home in you. Romans 8.11 says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So the spirit dwells in us as well. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that you are the temple, you are the tabernacle of God that the Spirit of God dwells in you. When I was reading on this, I mean, it just blew my mind how important the tabernacle is in the Old Testament. The tabernacle's importance is evident by the amount of space it occupies in the Bible. There's over 50 chapters in the Old Testament regarding the tabernacle, and the details of the tabernacle teaches us incredible truths from the minutest details to the evident truth we, we can see in the scriptures. And what I love about it is that it paints this picture of who Christ is, that the Holy Spirit will bring back to us throughout our lives. The Gospels point to the tabernacle, and the tabernacle points to the gospel, as we've already seen, right? In John 1, Christ tabernacled him, himself. So I, I want to read... Um, in Hebrews 9, it talks about the tabernacle. So um, Hebrews 9.1 says, and this is in the Amplified, Now, even the first covenant had its own rules and regulations for divine worship, and it had a sanctuary, but one of this world, this earth. For a tabernacle was erected in the outer division or compartment of which were the lampstand and the table with its loaves of showbread set forth. This is called the holy place. But inside, beyond the second curtain or veil, there stood another tabernacle known as the Holy of Holies, 
and it had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered over with wrought gold. This Ark contained a golden jar which held the manna and the rod of Aaron that sprouted and the two stone slabs of the covenant bearing the Ten Commandments. Above the Ark overshadowing the mercy seat were the representations of cherubims of glory. We cannot now go into detail about these things. These arrangements having thus been made, the priest entered habitually into the outer division of the tabernacle in performance of their ritual acts of, wor of worship. But into the second division of the tabernacle, none of the high priest goes, and he only but once a year, and never without taking a sacrifice of blood with him, which he offers for himself and for the errors of sins, of ignorance and thoughtlessness which the people have committed. By this, the Holy Spirit points out that the way into the true holy of holies is not yet thrown open as long as the former, the outer portion of the tabernacle, and I'll explain this, uh, remains a recognized institution and is still standing. See, seeing that the first tabernacle was a parable, a visible symbol or type or picture of the present age, in its gifts and sacrifices are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience or cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. For ceremonies deal only with clean and unclean meats and drinking and different washings, external rules and regulations for the body imposed of the tithe worshippers over until the time of setting things straight of the complete new order when Christ the Messiah shall establish the reality of what these things foreshadow, which is a better covenant. But when Christ the Messiah appeared as a high priest of the better things that have come and are to come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, his body not made with human hands, that is not a part of this material creation, Christ went once for all into the Holy of Holies, not by virtue of the blood of goats and calves by which to make reconciliation between God and man, but his own blood having found and secured a complete redemption and everlasting release for us. For if the mere sprinkling of unholy and defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a burnt heifer is sufficient for the purification of the body, how much more surely shall the blood of Christ, who by virtue of eternal spirit, has offered himself an unblemished sacrifice to God, purify our conscience from dead works and lifeless observances to serve the ever-living God. So we we see here in you know verses one through five, and also in Exodus twenty-seven eight through eighteen, you can read um, about the court walls, the court. So there was a court which was approximately 150 feet by 75 feet by 150 feet. So it was a big court. And, and the walls were seven, feet, seven and a half feet high. And on the east side of the court was the entrance. These walls of the court signify man's inability to come to God, right? Because God met with them in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Fallen man separated from God because of sin. The, the gate or the door was about 30 feet wide. Um, and there were three gates. Okay, so you had the court, 
and the one gate on the east side, and then you had the tabernacle inside that court, which had another gate or door, and then the tabernacle was split in two separate divisions, which had the veil, um, which we'll talk about here in a minute. In Exodus 38, 17, it says, And the sockets for the pillars were of brass, so the wall were um, fit with silver, and, and there was brass on the outside as, as well. Um, and the sockets for the pillars were of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver, and the overlaying of their, their chapters, which the ch chapter, so the the doors or the columns had these beautiful ornamental crowns, which um, we'll talk about later as well. And then in Exodus 27, E 11, it says, and, and likewise for the north side in the length, there shall be hangings of a hundred cubits long and his 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of brass and hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. As we've been taught, silver always speaks of redemption and uh, brass speaks of judgment. So while revealing our or the man's fallen, you know, the lack of righteousness and separation from God, um, the, it spoke of the fact that salvation is available for those who enter by that one door, the east door of the courtyard. And the brass sockets exteriorly threatened judgment for those who didn't, but the silver caps pointed to salvation. And the pillars, there were pillars as well, crowned with uh, which the ornamental crowns, um, those that depict redemption as, as well. So there was only one gate into the court on the outside, um, and it, it was a cloth gate made of four pillars and a curtain, which I mentioned earlier, 30 feet long. In Exodus 26, 14 through 16, it describes this. The hanging of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, their pillars three parts, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings 15 cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the gate of the court, which is the curtain, shall be a hanging of 20 cu cubits, which is the 30 feet long, of blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four and their sockets shall be four. So the sockets were always silver. And the curtains were fine linen. They were the very best quality point, pointing to Christ's peerless nature. There was no admixture with who he was. He was pure. The white linen uh, depicts his righteousness or sinless humanity. In 1 Peter 2.22, it says, Who did no sin, and ne neither was guile found in his mouth. Um, the blue in that um, curtain it speaks of the color of the, the sky and it signifies Christ as the Lord coming from heaven. And the purple speaks of uh, ro royalty, you know, Christ as the King of kings. And today Christ reigns above all and he will reign over the earth in the millennial uh, reign and forever in the new heaven and the new earth. And then scarlet, as we've been taught, um, speaks of the blood of Christ and Christ as our Savior. Um, Christ's blood can make our, a sinner's sin. Um, a sinner's scarlet sins white. In Isaiah 118, Come now, 
and let, let, let us reason together, reason, right, the thought. Um, let's think together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Christ, our Savior, the Lamb for, for those who accept His blood, and He is the judge. And in Revelations, it says He'll come down with a vest dripped with blood. He's the judge for those who reject it. So he's it's, it's saving, and there's also the judgment. And notice the scarlet, in, in, any, in any sequence of color, the scarlet is always mentioned last. And they perhaps it teaches that if Jesus were not the sinless Son of God, which the other three colors teach us, he could not have made acceptable atonement for man's sins. Only the virgin-born God manifested in flesh could save men from their souls. And the four colors woven together by skillfully needlework signify Christ's perfectly balanced life. And he is man and God. He's not just man and, or just God. He's man and God. He is holy and compassionate. He is humble and bold. He is patient and firm. He warns of judgment and, and offers salvation from judgment to those who do receive it. And we see that in First John 2, 1. And through, through 2, he was a propitiation for those that would receive. He comforts and rebukes. He loves and honored his parents, but put God first. And he kept every law of God in perfect harmony with the other laws. John 10, 9 talks about the door. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And Acts 4, 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So he is that one door. Um, any individual who tries to come to God on any other basis of that one door of Christ is rejected, just like Cain was rejected when he tried to approach God by the works of his hands in Genesis 4, and then he built his own city. The three, listen, is the three gates of the doors, right? The court, the tabernacle, and the holy of holies, the veil. Depict Christ as the way, the truth, and the, and the life. He's the way of salvation as represented by the door into the court. So the court, and, and I'll go into like the sequence of what was there, the items that were there. But the court, right after the gate was the altar of sacrifice. So he's the, the way of salvation by the way of the door into the court that led to the altar of sacrifice. He's the truth as represented by the entrance into the tabernacle, into the place of the candlestick, because in the tabernacle there was a candlestick, table of showbread, and the incense. And then he's the way of life, as re represented by veil into the holy of holies, which was torn where, when Christ died. So it's, I mean, it, everything shows points to Christ. So... Right after the gate was the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice was made of wood covered with brass. It was a seven and a half foot square. So it was a perfect seven and a half foot square. And it was about four and a half feet high. 
and it had horns on on the four corners the sacrifices were killed on the north side of the altar and the ashes were placed on the east side which was facing the gate um, that's found in Exodus 27 1 through 8 and it, this depicts the cross of Christ where Jesus shed his blood so all the sacrifices you know their blood was shed on the alt altar and died as the lamb of God in John 129 as a sinner approached God from the outside tabernacle walls walking towards the tabernacle where God dwelt he first came to the altar of sacrifice thus signifying that there is no salvation apart from Christ's blood and death man can only come to God through the atonement that Jesus made on the cross and we see how it beautifully summarizes the gospel right the sacrifices pointed to the one Christ whose sacrifice was sufficient to save all but in practice the sacrifice of Christ saves only those who personally believe and that's again 1 John 2 1 he was made the propitiation right he paid for the sins of those that would receive him looking at the gate Studying the gate, even admiring the gate, was not enough to bring the individual into God's covenant. He had to enter and come under the protection of the offerings on the altar of sacrifice. Once the sinner entered the court through the gate, he found himself safe within the walls. And the walls of the court were white, which speaks of his righteousness, how... He demands righteousness, and thankfully, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ has made our righteousness. The wood covered, as we've been taught, the wood speaks of humanity, gold speaks of deity, brass signifies judgment. Um, in regards to the altar, right? Um, the wood was covered with brass, it signifies the judgment that fell on Christ on the cross when he bore our, our sins. Um, throughout the Psalms, the horns speak of power, Christ's authority as a son of God, ha as having all authority in heaven and in earth, and thus signifies the power of Christ to save to the uttermost. There's everything symptomatic of, um, of the power of Christ. The size of the altar was twice as large, and it speaks as twice as large as the Ark of the Covenant, and it speaks of the complete efficacy of Christ's atonement. And, the, and listen to this. The fire of the altar was to burn continually. It was never to go out in Leviticus 6, 12 through 13. And that speaks of the never-ceasing aspect of Christ's salvation. We are eternally saved. It's, it saves completely. It's, it saves forever. He, Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And in 4.16 it says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, the laver, right? So you got the altar. And then the next thing in between the gate and the, and the tabernacle was the laver. In front of the entrance to the tabernacle was the laver. For washing, it, it would be right after you make, the high priest would make, the sacrifice, he'd go and wash his hands and his clothes and his body. And that's in Exodus 30, 17 through 21. It speaks about the laver and how it should be built and what should be done. Um, we're running out of time, so we're not, not going to read that. But you can read that again in Exodus 30, 17 through 21.
It signifies cleansing of sin from the Christian life to maintain fellowship with him. Um, in John 13, we've been taught that the once you accept Christ, you're sanctified. That's the one washing in regards to the laver. But there was also a continual cleansing, right? Wash your hands, wash your feet, your service and your walk. Be purified with the word. And the laver was always available day and night. The size is not given, signifying the limitless grace of God. The Lord doesn't get tired of hearing our confessions. First John 1 John 1.9, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Psalms 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and plentiful in mercy unto all them that call upon you. It's significant that the priest could not enter into the Holy of Holies or the holy place after serving at the altar until his hands and feet were cleansed. And so I want to uh, go by real quick before I, uh, time runs out on the tabernacle. Um, it was made according to the pattern that was shown to Moses by God. Um, and that's in Exodus 25, 40, 26, 30, and Acts 7, 44. It's described from God's perspective rather than from man's perspective. God told him exactly how to build it, and he didn't lack in any of the details of building it. Um, this is always the viewpoint from which we should live our lives. When we receive his thoughts versus ours, we can experience the fullness that he has for us. And the, the, within the court of the tabernacle itself, the tabernacle was 45 wide, 15 feet high, and 15 feet wide. The walls in Exodus 26, 15 through 30, the side and rear walls were made up of boards covered with gold. The boards were 15 feet tall and 2.25 feet wide. And there were a total of 48, and each board fit into the two sockets of silver, right? So um, wood speaks of, of his humanity, the gold speaks of his deity, and the gold was covering the wood. So that signifies that he's the God-man. Um, and they were fit into that silver socket. Um, and the entire tabernacle rested on a strong silver foundation because all the boards were put on the silver sockets. And all the silver that was brought was brought from the tribes. Everyone gave everything that they had. And that speaks of us giving to the local assembly all our time you know, what, whatever God has for us, which is beautiful, right? And anything made of wood was made with acacia wood. I think that's how you say it, or shittim wood. It was a common tree that grew in the desert, and it depicts Christ as a root out of dry ground, precious and durable. It was a tree that grew in the desert where other trees could not grow, and it signifies Christ's supernatural birth just as it is unnatural for a root to grow out of a dry ground, right, in gardening. So Christ's birth was not natural. He is the virgin-born, sinless man. It also depicts Christ's lack of comeliness. The shittim tree is an ordinary tree. It doesn't have the glory and stature of the cedar or of the fir or of the olive tree. The olive tree provides a variety of food and oil as well as wood for construction. Ordinary shittim wood was used because it well signifies Christ's first coming in the form of a servant 
to die for man's sin. And Philippians 2, 6 through 9 and Isaiah 53, 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has none, no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there, sh there is no beauty that we should desire him. And I'll finish this up. I wish I had more time. But the tabernacle had no beauty exteriorly because it was clothed with goat's hair and dyed ram skin, which is why in Isaiah 53, 2 to 3, no one would desire it. From the outside of the tabernacle, the only thing visible were the white curtains, parts of the wooden pillars, and the dark covering of the tabernacle rising above the height of the walls. The tabernacle was 15 feet high. The courtyard was seven and a half feet. And the tabernacle inside the courtyard was 15. So it was almost double. It was double in height. And it wasn't that inviting. People from the outside see something not worth it. But when you and the priest would enter in, it was beautiful. The light of the candlestick was the only light source in the tabernacle. And it speaks of Christ's light. Um, the, and I'll share probably later this week on this because Gavi has to share. But the um, covering of the, ta of, the, of the tabernacle, when you go inside and you look up, there were two cherubims woven into the covering. The cherubims would always protect the holiness of God and how it guarded the holy place. And now, because Christ fulfilled the law, the cherubims now are, op are inviting sinners to come in. So I, there was way more to share that I would have loved to share, but um, I'll share sometime this week. But it's beautiful how everything points to Christ. And how it really does paint this incredible picture of who our Savior is. So in Romans 8, uh, the whole chapter, and I'll be reading in Amplified just because it's useful for me. <laughs> Therefore, there, there, is no, there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in Him as personal Lord and Savior. That You can also find that in John 3.18. For the law of the spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, the law of our new beginning, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that is overcome sin and remove its penalty, its power being weakened by the flesh, man's nature without the Holy Spirit, God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man. In other, in other translations, this has other different versions of that, that phrase, but... God sent His own Son in the likeness of man as an offering for sin, and He condemned sin in the flesh, subdued it, and overcame it in the person of His own Son. You can see that in Leviticus 7, verse 37. Now we're on verse 4. So that the righteous and just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not live our lives in the ways of the flesh, guided by the worldliness and our sinful nature. But live our lives in the ways of the Spirit, guided by His power. For those who are living according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, which gratify the body. But those who are living according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit, His will and His purpose. Now the mind of the flesh is death, 
both now and forever, because it pursues sin. But the mind of the Spirit is life and peace, the spiritual well-being that comes from walking with God, both now and forever. The mind of the flesh, with its sinful pursuits, is actively hostile towards God. It does not submit itself to God's law, since it cannot. And those who are in the flesh, living a life that caters to sinful appetites and impulses, cannot please God. However, you are not living in the flesh, controlled by the sinful nature, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God lives in you, directing and guiding you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him and is not a child of God. You can see that in Romans 8, verse 14. Here we on, uh, here a little bit further. If Christ lives in you, though your natural body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness which He provides. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But not to our flesh, our human nature, our worldliness, our sinful capacity to live according to the impulses of the flesh, our nature without the Holy Spirit. For if you are living according to the impulses of the flesh, you are going to die. But if you're living by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are habitually putting to death the sinful deeds of your body. You will really live forever. For all who are allowing themselves to be led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear of God's judgment. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, the spirit producing sonship by which we joyfully cry, Abba, Father. And I mean, if you look back to last Sunday, we were talking about adoption and looking into uh, the, the adoptive aspect of our nature spiritually with God in a local assembly, how it's our family and how that we're adopted into this now nature that produces the spirit that allows us to call him Abba Father. And I think that's just, I think that's beautiful. The spirit himself in verse 16, the spirit himself testifies and confirms together with our spirit, assuring us that we believers are children of God. And if we are his children, then we are his heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sharing his spiritual blessing and inheritance. If indeed we share in his suffering, so we may so that we may also share in his glory. You can see you can see that whole entire idea in John 17, verse 24, Galatians 3, verse 29, chapters 4, verse 7, Ephesians 1 and 3. Uh, I mean, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and then also verse 11, chapters 3, verse 6, and then in Hebrews 6, 12. For I consider from the standpoint of faith that the sufferings of the present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us and in us. For even the whole creation, all nature, waits eagerly for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration and futility. Not willingly, because of some intentional fault on its part, but by the will of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be freed from its bondage to decay, and again entrance into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been moaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, 
but we too who have the first fruits of the Spirit, a joyful indication of the blessings to come. Even we groan in- inwardly as we wait eagerly for the sign of our adoption as sons, the redemption and transformation of our body at the resurrection. For in this hope we were saved by faith, but hope, the object of which is seen, is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly for it to, with patience and composure. As I read this, I think of um, God brought the thought of a uh, completely hopeless and helpless child in a well. No strength to, to do anything of its own to get it out of there. Nothing capable in terms of like knowledge. It has no knowledge has, how to get out. Besides try. And it's stuck in there forever. Until someone is willing enough to pull it out. The issue is, is that the child brought that condemnation on itself. And in essence was born in that well. It was stuck there. And um, it, it brought to mind plenty of my past and plenty of... Uh, the wrongdoings that I had done to myself and others, and to think about the redemptive quality that comes with the new identity and the new image. Uh, and as we see in verse 26 uh, to the rest of the chapter, it explains um, it explains the other half of what I was just saying. In the same way, the Spirit comes to us and helps us in our weakness. We do not know what prayer to offer or how to offer it as we should, but the Spirit Himself knows our need and at the right time intercedes on our behalf with sighs and groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes before God on behalf of God's people in accordance with God's will. And we know with great confidence That God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good for those who love God. To those who are called according to His plan and purpose. For those whom He foreknew and loved and chose beforehand, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son and ultimately share in His complete sanctification so that we would be firstborn the most beloved and honored among many believers. I think in verse 29, um, how it pairs with what Jadiel was just uh, sharing on about the tabernacles. You know, I see, I, I, I hear all of the various attributes of these tabernacles, all of the dividing sections in it and how all of these rituals and regulations had to take place in order for the atonement of sins to happen. But then I view it now and see how Christ abolished all of that and took all of that tabernacle and embodied it in himself and brought it for us so that he can dwell within us. And I think, like again, like I mentioned last Sunday, who else but God could love us so deeply to do that? No one. No one. Only justified through Christ. And, and if I remember correctly, which I think I do, 
uh, all of those atonements that t- that required bloodshed and everything that took place for the atonement of sin merely only took the merited punishment of sin, but never dealt with a polluted conscience. And the polluted conscience was now cleansed through the blood. The sanctification process sanctified also our minds so that way we don't even share the same thoughts that we used to have. That hopelessness, that feeling of just constantly being without is gone. And uh, I thought, I think that's very beautiful and, and quite special to be able to have that and to share that not only with myself in my own private life, in my own private walk with God, but to share that also with others, because that's something that we all have. Everyone here in this local assembly, everyone in Texas in that local assembly, everyone listening to this recording, all of us share that same capability and that same mindset that our conscience is cleansed and what we think and how we think, the process of everything is cleansed and it's new. But many of us choose to walk back and to think the same way and to go and do the same things when everything is new. This, this, and I view back then as many would think like a medieval time, but I think of it as a desperate time. It required bloodshed. It means that someone had to take a pure sacrifice, cut it open and drain the blood out of it so it would not live anymore to atone for the deeds that have been taken and done. And I think nowadays in this in this modern time, we don't take I mean we take for granted the sacrifice that took place on Calvary. And the blood that was actually shed, I mean just the thought of it brings tears to my eyes that 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 Christ embodied the tabernacle, took everything that God wanted, which was us, the desire, the, the passion, and decided to offer himself as a sacrifice to the Father for the propitiation of the sins that we were not even capable of thinking that we could get to that point. I, I think the I'm grateful to have that reality just set in like stone and recognize that that it wasn't just Christ that just died on a cross. It was a it was a brutal and extremely painful death that took place for the atonement of my sins and for everyone who chooses to follow. Verse 31. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can successfully be against us? He who do he who did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect, his chosen ones, which is us? It is God who justifies us, declaring us blameless and putting us in a right relationship with himself. Who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus is the one who paid and died for our penalty. And more than that, who was raised from the dead and who is at the right hand of God, interceding with the Father for us. Verse 35. Who shall ever separate us from the love of Christ? Will will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
Just as it is written and forever remains written, for your sake we are put to death all day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. That, those, two, those two sentences are found in Psalms 44, verse 22. And that, I read that Psalms, and it's actually quite sad. But if you look at the bigger picture of it, um, the writer was talking about how God led all of the previous generations to victory in all these armies and all these wars. They were blessed and, and, I mean, graces were just given to them. I mean, they had riches, the wealth. They were, there was no foe that would stand against. And then God took it all away from them on purpose. But God took it all away from them and they're crying out, wondering why did God leave, quote unquote. He never left. But as you read further on, you realize that God does that to them to show them that they cannot do it on their own. Just as we could never do it on our own, Christ had to do something for us to get us to that point of right standing with Him. In verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors and gain an overwhelming victory through Him who loved us so much that He died for us. For I am convinced and continue to be convinced beyond any doubt that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present and threatening, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the unlimited love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I see the, the description of the tabernacle and I see the... the Again, the separation that had to take place because no common man was able to just walk into the most holy of holies. Um, and we'll see that right here um, in Hebrews 6. There's only 20 verses, so 21 verses, I think. Yeah, just 20. So in Hebrews 6, the peril of falling away. Um, God led me to Hebrews 6 because He wanted to show... I guess, because to me, the biggest issue with my walk with God, and I, and, I, and I just say this transparently, my biggest issue with walk with God is commitment and just constant dedication to Him. Um, that's, always been my, that's always been my thing. But in Romans 8, we saw that we came from hopelessness, not, not worthy that even sacrificing for the atonement of sins dealt with a cleansed conscience or a polluted conscience, and uh, that we became more than conquerors, more than victors, in our newfound image in Christ, that new identity um, that has set us free from the bondage of sin, the 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 bondage of the of a polluted mind. I mean, you could be free from sin, but if your mind is corrupted, then well, it's a very hard walk to walk on. I mean, you can't you can't just you can't just live like that and expect to not sin. You can't just live like that and expect that your thoughts will just end up being purified. God took care of all of that all at once. So in Hebrews 6, we see the peril of falling away. Um, and Paul wrote this very, very well. Um, Therefore, let us get past the elementary stage in the teachings about the Christ, advancing on to maturity and perfection and spiritual completeness, doing this without laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Paul, I guess, was... Uh, kind of tired of explaining the same beginnings of Christianity and this relationship, this new right standing, our new image, and wanted to get past that and talk about more in-depth things, which he explains here. 
in verse 2, of teaching about washings, ritual purifications, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are all important matters in which you should have been proficient long ago. And we will do this, that is, proceed to maturity if God permits. For it is impossible to restore to redemption, I mean, to repentance those who have once been enlightened spiritually and who have tasted and consciously experienced the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted, consciously experienced the good. And I'm sorry, verse five and have tasted and consciously experienced the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to bring them back again to repentance, since they again nail the Son of God on the cross, for as far as they are concerned, they are treating the death of Christ as if they were not saved by it, and are holding him up again to public disgrace. For the soil that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, produces crops useful to those who benefit it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. Let me read that again, because the way I read it was wrong. For soil that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and produces crops useful to those whose benefit it is to cultivate it, to cultivate it, receives a blessing from God. But if it persistently produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it is, and it ends up being burned. Verse nine. But beloved, even though we speak to you in this way, we are convinced of better things concerning you and of things that accompany. And of things that accompany salvation. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown for, for his name in ministering to those, in ministering to the needs of the saints of God's people as you do. And we desire for each one of you to show the same diligence all the way through so as to realize and enjoy full assurance and hope until the end, so that you will not be spiritually sluggish but will instead be imitators of those who, through faith, lean on God with absolute trust and confidence in Him, in His power, and by patient endurance, even when suffering, are now inheriting the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, He swore an oath by Himself, since He had no one greater by whom to swear, saying, I, sure, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he realized the promise in the miraculous birth of Isaac as a pledge of what was to come from God. Indeed, men swear by an oath, by one greater than themselves. And with them, in all disputes, the oath serves as a confirmation of what has been said. And in the end of the dispute, as an end of the dispute, verse 17. In the same way, God in his desire to show to the heirs of the promise of the promise, the unchangeable nature of his purpose, intervened and guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to him for refuge would have strong encouragement and indwelling strength to hold tightly to the hope set before us. This hope, this confident assurance we have as an anchor of the soul, it cannot slip and it cannot break down under whatsoever pressure bears upon it. A safe and steadfast hope that enters within the veil of the heavenly temple, that most holy place in which the very presence of God dwells, that you can see in Leviticus 16 verse 2, where Jesus has entered in advance as a forerunner for us, 
having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Paul was mentioning that it is foolish for us to constantly babble about the elementary stages. Only God can renew those that constantly waver back and forth. Just as much as like we're taught here, I can't have faith for my brother. I can't trust in God for my brother. I can trust God for my brother and I can have faith towards God that my brother will come back from whatever state he's in, right? But it is impossible for me to do anything physically besides pray for that brother. Only God is able to, to move man or woman from the state that they're in over to the, to the state that he wants them in. He will even let our own backsliding. I mean, we, we can definitely attest that Ed has definitely preached on this several times that our own backsliding is a lesson from God to bring us back to him. Because if we're not going forward, we're either going sideways or left or right or back. But all of the other directions besides where God has asked us to go is backsliding. Uh, there is no if, ands, or buts about that. That is just straight and simple truth. Um, as we can see, all that work is completed from the age of when they were building the tabernacle all the way to where Christ died to where we are now. The, the work has been completed, made full, manifested, and is now as a gift amongst many other gifts within it. Um, and I like how when Jael was explaining about the tabernacle, how the outwardly appearance of this tabernacle did not look nice, but the only thing that you could see was Christ. The only thing that you could see was that white veil. The only thing that you could see was the white curtain, the door. It didn't look pretty, but the only thing that you could see from far away was that and the, uh, what, what's it called? The, the, sh yeah, the, the, the black, right? It was like a black curtain, the tent, the covering of it. So those are the only two things you could see. And then when you enter in, you have a whole different view of everything. Everything doesn't look the same inside versus out. The only thing that stands the same was the three white, the three white curtains. And as we can see here, where is it at? That Christ entered into the Holy of Holies for us. He entered into the, to, to the private place that only the priest would go in once a year. But he entered in in advance for us. The work is completed. He entered into the Holy of Holies, made manifest the temple, and brought it to us as a simple choice. And with that same choice, there is an honor, there is an oath, that covenant that God made with Adam, I mean with Abraham. He made that one oath, that one promise that will bring you descendants more than the stars. More than the sands in the, on the ground, right? And that same oath that he held fulfilled, he brings that same honor, that same power to us within a covenant with him. So to recap a little bit, because I'm running out of time. The work is completed. We have this new identity. We were forgiven of the past, present, and future sins. We have a cleansed conscience to come along with that. He promised us in that same oath to be partakers of the Holy Spirit. The essence 
that comes out between Christ and between God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is also we are able to be partakers of it. The only theologian, the only scholar qualified to ever interpret the Bible to us, we are partakers of it. We can taste the Word of God properly through this Holy Spirit because tasting the Word of God without the Holy Spirit is quite sad because we're not able to fully understand it. It's sort of like getting a <laughs> like half of a meal or a quarter of a meal, but you're able to see the rest of it, but you don't understand why you can't have it. We are no, no, we are no longer known for our past selves. With a new identity, you have a new name, you have a new sense of being, you're no longer attached to your former self. All these things and more with just a simple choice of submitting our will to Christ. I think that's quite astounding to see how much he brings to the table and what we have to offer. All we have to offer is obedience and responsive love because we are not capable of anything else. We were just as hopeless as we were before, but now we have victory and we have power and we're more than conquerors in this new identity along with this plethora of gifts that God has given us. And so for final, we'll go to Galatians. And I'll wrap up here. <clears throat> um, and uh, God wanted me to bring up a little bit about what Paul and Peter talked about here. Um, just briefly. Um, but in verses, in chapters 2, verse 11 through 13. Now when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face about his conduct there, because he stood condemned by his own actions. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat his meals with the Gentiles. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile believers, because he was afraid of those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, ignoring their knowledge that, Jews, that Jewish and Gentile Christians were united under the new covenant into one faith, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So, uh, I really like how, um, and I'll reference this as long as I have to, but Ed mentions that just a little leaven affects the whole loaf. Just a little leaven affects the whole loaf. And I know that Gene and I, we love to bake. And we know that if you throw just a little bit of proper yeast into a loaf, it affects everything. It affects everything. I mean, you put the wrong ingredient in a recipe for some cookies and everything is kind of messed up. Um, in a local assembly, if we don't function correctly in this proper image it affects everyone it affected these believers it affected Barnabas what Paul was doing he was separating himself because he didn't want to be seen with Gentiles and he didn't want to be seen with Jewish people at the same time even though under this new covenant God got rid of all of that God got rid of all of it and Paul is being affected by it so this is uh, I mean Peter was being affected by it Paul this is his response but when I saw that they, in verse 14, but when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, if you, being like a Jew, live 
as you have been living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you are now virtually forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews if they want to eat with you? Verse 15. I went on to say, we are Jews by birth and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Verse 16. Yet we know that a man is not justified and placed in right standing with God by works of the law, but only through faith. I cannot read, but only through faith, <laughs> but only through faith in God's beloved son, Christ Jesus. And even as even we as Jews have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. By observing the law, no one will ever be justified, declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty. But if we seek to be justified in Christ by faith, we ourselves are found to be sinners. Does that make Christ an advocate or promoter of our sin? Certainly not. For if I or anyone else should rebuild through word or by practice what I once tore down, the belief that observing the law is essential for salvation, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law. And it demands on me because salvation is provided through the death and resurrection of Christ so that I might from now on live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That is, in him I have shared his crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, by adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not ignore or nullify the gracious gift of the grace of God, His amazing unmerited favor. For if righteousness comes through observing the law, then Christ died needlessly. His suffering and death would have had no purpose whatsoever. And uh, I love how he handled <laughs> that little kerfuffle with Peter, um, explaining that, there is no difference. I mean, this puts an end to race arguments in general. This puts an end to all differences set aside of where you come from, who you are, why, why people hate each other. I mean, just the way the world is in general, it puts to silence all of it. I love how all of the world's problems that are going on right now in 2022 are quite obviously like fixed in Christ. Every single problem there is out there in the world goes away with Christ. Every single one of them. There is no argue that can combat that. I mean, if every single human being on the planet submitted their wills to Christ, I mean, it would just be gone. There'd be peace. So there's three little things that are said as I, as I end this right here because I'm two minutes over. I apologize. Uh, to live with the truth that we are justified by and only through faith in Christ alone. There is absolutely nothing else on this planet that can justify us or give us a right standing with God. That's, that's just not right. There's, no, there's nothing else. To not let the enemy disturb the peace of mind that faith in Christ brings. When we are, as humans, encountered with certain situations that bring a disturbed mind or an uneasy mind or an unsettled mind, having faith in Christ, for me at least, has always brought a sense of peace 
this deep dwelling sense of peace. It's not just like superficial or it's like, oh, I just have a little peace about this. No, it's a peace that I, I'm there is there. It's a settled peace. It's a, it's a found settled peace that does not go away. Um, and the last thing, um, constant dependence on him for everything brings this deep peace of mind that I was just mentioning. Um, having uh, that always readily available source of power brings a set of constant, this constant dependence brings this sense of peace knowing that he's always going to be there. Even if my earthly situation doesn't change, I know my power source will never change. Because we're not of this world. We're simply just living here. And having that mindset has definitely helped these last, I don't know, however many months I've been up here, um, where the enemy has attacked and been brutal and just been awful. So, um, just to be encouraged that those three things are the only things that we can do out of those three things, out of those three things to, to live in the truth that we're justified by faith alone through in Christ alone and to not let the enemy disturb the peace of mind that, that faith brings um, and the constant dependence on him for everything brings that deep state of peace is the only thing that we're capable in doing all those is submission of our will and the work is for him to do. Everything else just falls out on its own. And so I think I'm very encouraged and reassured knowing that I'm not capable of doing anything. And I find peace in that because that means that the, the, the payload, the responsibility, the work of all of this is not laid on me. I wouldn't be able to bear it. None of us would. All of that falls on Christ. So, <clears throat> Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this. Uh, thank you for your counsel and your guidance as much as I desperately needed it this morning. And uh, Father, I ask that you uh, that you bless everyone here and you um, you take care of Ed this morning as he's in Texas flying. Definitely brings a lot of pain and and troubles his way. So. I pray that you give him, you know, relief of pain, relief of stress if he has any. And I ask that you be with Barbara as well as she uh, she's not had a good night and she's uh, suffering a little bit. So, Father, I ask that you give her a deep rest and um, give her give her some deep peace and pain relief. Father, I ask that you be with us as you guide our days the rest of this week um, and that you constantly guide us and counsel us. Um, and you uh, just, we just ask that you be who you are. <laughs> in, in your word, it says that even in ourselves, we don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, knowing what we need in the nick of time. So we ask that the Holy Spirit does that exact same thing. In your name we pray. Amen.